like to begin the message today with a story when Rhonda and I were young and in love, as opposed to now when we're just a little bit older and in love. But uh, no, I didn't. I corrected that, Tom. You got to listen carefully. It's important. Uh, when Rhonda and I were young and in love, when we were dating, uh, there was a a beautiful spring day that we were, uh, actually, as I recall, driving to Holland to the Tulip Festival uh, to go look at the flowers. Uh, I was a young seminary student. She was a college student. And it was a beautiful day. Uh, but as we drove in the car, um, I had that, that sense, sensitive guy that I am, that something wasn't quite right. Uh, there was something bothering uh, my wife. And unfortunately, it was one of those times that probably only we experienced, but uh, Rhonda couldn't or wouldn't put what was bothering her into words. And so I had to guess. Uh, that doesn't happen to anybody else, uh, I'm certain. And, uh, and so I asked some questions, and I, I finally felt like I was kind of zeroing in on the, the problem, but she still wasn't quite uh, able to say what it was. And I said, Honey, let me ask you a question. Is really what is bothering you is uh, we're dating and we're, we're kind of serious about things. And uh, you know that you're dating a seminary student. And so let me paint a little picture and see if this is really at the heart of what is troubling you. I said, are you worried that I'm going to graduate from seminary and we're going to get married? And I'm going to receive a call to a church in the deserts of New Mexico and I'm going to take you away from all of your family, and we're going to move to New Mexico at a little church that can't afford to pay me anything, and so I'm going to have to get a job in a boot factory. I don't know why it was a boot factory, but it was a boot factory. And I'm going to work 60 hours a week there and then work on a sermon and a, a church on top of that while you're home by yourself trying to stretch potato soup uh, so it'll last for an entire week in order to sustain our family in this desperate situation. Uh, I looked over at my wife and I told that ridiculous story, uh, and I realized two things. One is she would never admit that I hit it right on target. Uh, and number two is, uh, by the smile on her face, I knew that I absolutely had. That she said, what is this thing to marry somebody who wants to follow God and be involved in ministry? You know, bigger than that, I think that is a question that, that we as Christians can have or should have. What is it that if we follow God, what is it that we trust God is going to do to provide for us in our finances? We have passages in Scripture, like the rich young ruler. When he came to Jesus and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Uh, Jesus said, keep the commandments. And he said, hey, I keep the commandments. And he, like many of us, would probably say, you know what, hey, I am doing the best that I can, God. Can't you see that, Jesus? And Jesus takes things the next level with this rich young ruler, and he says, well, just sell all that you have, give it away, and then come and follow me. And there's something inside the heart of a sensitive Christian who says, is that what really God wants us to do? Is that what an authentic, passionate, Christian life looks like. Then we come to the passage that we're going to consider today. It's in Luke chapter 12. I encourage you to turn in your Bibles uh, to it. Uh, we'll be continuing the series that we have been in the book of Luke. And, uh, and Pastor Chris gave me the full run of Luke chapter 12. In fact, actually, Pastor Chris said, 
You know what, Ken, you can preach on Luke 12. Because um, I'm not sure what we're going to do with that because I just preached a series on Luke chapter 12. Um, and uh, he said that, and I, I looked over at Jared, because Jared's my friend, and I said, Jared, do you remember the series on Luke chapter 12? And he's like, no. And so we, we looked through the archives, and it was actually five years ago. Uh, <laughs> that Pastor Chris preached uh, on Luke chapter 12. And so I'm figuring the statute of limitations has expired and we can go back to Luke 12 without it seeming too repetitive for most of you, uh, at least. At least for Jared and myself. Uh, but we're in Luke chapter 12, and we're going to focus in on one story here. And when Pastor Chris comes back next week, he is going to resume, and he is going to go to Luke 13 because he trusts your memory uh, a lot better than I do, I guess. Uh, in Luke chapter 12, we read a story about a farmer, uh, a farmer who had a good year, a farmer who uh, harvested a huge crop beyond all of his expectations, and the farmer had to decide what he needed to do uh, with this bumper crop. And uh, it says in Luke chapter 12, this story is in verses 13 through 21, that he said, I'm going to tear down my barns and build bigger barns because I don't have room to store uh, all of this crop uh, that I have, uh, I have harvested. And up to this point, this story makes sense. It, it could even be read as a story of, wow, isn't that good? Isn't that God's blessing uh, on this farmer? Uh, but when the farmer makes this statement uh, in verse 19, uh, God has a response. God says to him, you fool, uh, this very night your life will be demanded from you, then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? Uh, and this story, it troubles me, a little bit like the story of the rich young ruler troubles me. Because it says, you know what, isn't this a legitimate business decision uh, that this farmer is making? He's received a great crop, he needs a place to store it, he's going to build bigger barns, he's going to take care of it. Why is God so harsh uh, at this businessman doing the best that he can? Is there something wrong uh, with this farmer um, trying to, to manage his harvest is the way that seemed to make the best sense that he did? Was it his responsibility uh, to give away the excess of his harvest, uh, to give it away as quickly as he, as he received it? Uh, what exactly is God's expectation for him and for us with the, the goods, the money, the income, the, the stuff of our life. Uh, what is this story really all about, and why is God's judgment on this farmer so harsh? Why so harsh? You know, as I read this passage, I believe there are five keys that you have to get a handle on in order to understand what Jesus is really and truly saying, what this story is really uh, about. Uh, the first of these keys is actually in the, in the run-up to the story, in the introduction of the story. Uh, Jesus is teaching in Luke chapter 12 to his disciples, but it also appears that there's a large crowd around him as he is teaching his disciples. And in verse 13, it says, Someone in the crowd said to him, uh, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. For a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Key number one to understand this parable 
is it is ultimately, it's about greed. Uh, Jesus says, be on your watch against all kinds of greed. Uh, how does greed enter this story? Uh, well, it is probable that this person who comes to him is a younger son in a family who has, his father has passed away, and the family is dividing up the, the inheritance. In biblical times, the standard operating procedure when someone dies is that the eldest son would get a double portion, uh, twice as much as any other heirs in the family. And so it is likely uh, that this is a younger son who says, that doesn't seem fair, it doesn't seem right, uh, it, it's not working out the way that it seems best for me. And so he has come to a prominent rabbi, Jesus, in order to exert, get the rabbi to exert some religious pressure upon his brother uh, in order for him to divide the inheritance in a way that seems more equitable uh, to him. What is interesting is that Jesus chooses not to enter into the dispute. Uh, it is as though he does not care about the details of this uh, because there's a bigger issue at stake. And that is what key number one is all about for understanding why Jesus tells this story. Key number one is Jesus says, uh, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Uh, Jesus says the issue is about greed. The parable that follows is about greed. It's all about greed, not about operating a business. Uh, but what is greed? That is a legitimate and a necessary question. Is it greedy if I don't give away everything that I have? The rich young ruler might lead us to say that. Uh, is it greedy to have a lot, to have a certain size house, a certain amount of money in the bank, a certain age car, uh, to buy clothes uh, at a, a certain time? Is having a lot of these things, is that greed? Is it greed to merely want more? Uh, the dictionary would define greed as an excessive desire for more. Interestingly, Jesus says, watch out and be your guard against all kinds of greed, acknowledging that there's different types of greed. That's why uh, some translations uh, call it covetousness, warning against all kinds of covetousness. Because one kind of greed is the greed that wants what my neighbor has, wants what others has. What exactly is greed? This parable is definitely about greed, but how do I know if I'm greedy? Now, this is a legitimate and difficult question because, well, there's two things that I think troubled me about make it, that make it difficult to answer that question. Uh, first of all is the fact that someone, somewhere, always thinks that I have too much. Have you noticed that? If I define greed based on what others say, Someone somewhere always says, you know, wow, that's an awfully nice car that you have there. Uh, oh, wow, is that a new shirt? Wow, that's nice. Wow, you buy name brand peanut butter. Uh, we only buy at Aldi uh, that we have. Uh, there are, there's a tremendous amount of ways, and always somewhere, somehow, someone can think, uh, you know what, that we have a little bit more. And so defining greed based on the perception of others is very difficult. Uh, but the second difficulty is probably more difficult and more strikes at the heart of the matter, is because most of us almost always think we need just a little bit more. None of us feel greedy. We would just think that a little bit more would be helpful. 
How many of you would like to have just a little bit more? All right, I appreciate when there's honest people coming to church. We just think it's a little bit more, and everybody thinks that. Um, I ought to shy away from this, uh, but do you suppose if you asked both of our major presidential candidates if they're greedy, do you think they would think that they are? No, they would say and have said, you know what, I've worked for everything that I've earned. Um, I deserve it. I've made sacrifices, and now I'm experiencing the rewards of that. Almost everyone thinks that we just need a little bit more. So if greed is an excessive desire for more, how do we know when that desire has become excessive? And the person that we should be most concerned about is when God thinks that desire is excessive. Well, let's keep looking at this passage and see what God says, what is greed? Because if I can't trust others and I can't trust myself to define what exactly it is when desire has gone too far, uh, I must say, how can I root this in what God says uh, about greed? So we'll look at this passage and describe how he describes the greed of the rich farmer. Uh, the next key, uh, first key, it's about greed. Uh, second key tells us it's really about stuff. Uh, he says in verse number 15, Jesus says, A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Uh, a man's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Uh, greed ultimately is about our attitude, our disposition towards the stuff of our life. I would suggest that most of us have a vision uh, of what a good life looks like. Um, for everybody, it's different. What does it look like when a person, when that, you know what, when life is good? And to be honest, if most of us were very honest, we'd say, you know what, it does have something to do with the cars that I drive or the house that I live in, uh, with the amount of money that I have in the bank, the access to, uh, to toys and clothes and stuff are part of that. Probably not all of it, but it is certainly part of it. It's a reality that we do deal, that we are part of this life is we do possess things. Uh, but Jesus says a man's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. It's not about what uh, we have uh, that really makes a true good life. In fact, I believe Jesus would say living as though this life is all that matters is the height of foolishness. Living as though this life is all that matters is the height of foolishness. If you read through the entirety of Luke chapter 12, actually the idea of what is this life about is a theme that is woven in and out in multiple places. In Luke 12, verse 4, Jesus says, you know what, your life, there's something that matters more than your life. You shouldn't worry about those who can merely kill your body. What you should be really concerned about is the one who holds your soul in your hand. He says this life and its stuff is not of ultimate consequence. It's what God's uh, perspective on my life that is most significant. In verse 22, uh, Jesus again talks about life. He says, don't worry about your life, what you will eat, about your body, what you will wear. For life is more than food and the body more than clothes. Jesus says this life, the stuff that, that consumes our attention so much of the time, 
He says we need to stop worrying about that because life is not about food and clothes, uh, about the physical things of this life alone. In verse number 31, Jesus says, seeking God's kingdom is the key to a good life. That all of these things, the, the necessities of life, will be given to us, will be taken care of by God if we seek his kingdom. His kingdom is worth living for. And in fact, in verse 33, he follows that up by saying, uh, you should give, sell your possessions, give it to the, for, the poor, and in doing so, you're providing purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will not be exhausted. Store up treasures in heaven. Uh, that is, a, that is a, a life that is worth living. In, in verse number 40, uh, Jesus tells another story, or uh, in uh, the verses around there, he tells another story. Uh, about a faithful and wise manager uh, who his master leaves him in, in charge of all that he owns. And he says, uh, the faithful manager does his, his master's will while he is gone. Uh, but then in verse number 40, uh, he says, actually, that's not the right verse. Um, in verse 45, he says, but suppose the servant says to himself, my master is taking a long time in coming. And he then begins to beat the men's servants. And he begins, and the maidservants, and to eat and drink and get drunk. He says, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he is not aware of. And he will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with unbelievers. These are harsh, strong words. Uh, because Jesus is attempting to break into the, the consciousness of people who are consumed with this life and the worries and cares of this life. And he says, this life is not all that matters. It's not about the stuff of this life. It is not about he who dies with the most toys winning. There is something that matters more than that. This past weekend, uh, many of the ladies of our church were at our annual ladies' retreat. And uh, in the closing session, the speaker uh, who was speaking at that and her husband came to tell uh, their story. Uh, Jim and Barb Yates were, uh, grew, I grew up in, at church with them, was friends with their, uh, with their kids. And uh, Jim and Barb Yates uh, were the folks who really seemed like they had it all together. Uh, Jim was a strong and vibrant guy. They were a, a, just the family who seems like, man, everything comes their way. They had the house on the lake. Uh, they were the people who were always the first ones to own a boat, probably the first people that I knew that owned a boat. They were the first people to own a jet ski. Uh, that I knew personally, and they had it all together. Uh, they loved the Lord, and that was certainly part of it, uh, but it also seemed, wow, you know, it seems like a lot more blessing goes their way than it does to, to a lot of other folks. Uh, this was Jim and Barb. They were wonderful, uh, wonderful people who seemed like they had it all. Well, as Jim and Barb told their story uh, this past weekend, um, about 12 years ago, uh, Jim was riding a horse at, his daughter's, uh, at her, his daughter's home, and he was thrown from that horse, uh, broke his neck, and was paralyzed from the neck down. Uh, immediately, his income was gone. Uh, immediately, all of their dreams about what the good life looked like were radically changed and different. And they had a decision to make. How would they respond? What is a good life? What is it that I expect God to do for me? 
uh, in this instance. Uh, I praise the Lord that Jim and Barb, their faith was real. It was real when things were going really good. And it was revealed to be real when things went really, really bad. And they remained faithful to God. And they say, you know what? Uh, one of the ladies at the retreat asked them, did you ever ask, why me? And uh, Jim's response is amazing. He chokes me up a little bit. And he said, you know what? Uh, we came to the conclusion that the better question is, why not me? Why not me? Is it somebody else who this type of thing should happen to? Why not me than a person who's going to be faithful and love the Lord in this? Uh, Jim and Barb, when they had it all and when much of it was taken away, knew that it's not about the stuff. The abundance of possessions does not make a life. Greed, whatever it is, and has something to do with my disposition towards my stuff. Well, how can I know if I'm consumed with it? Because to be honest, that's still the tricky question. Because I always, uh, I'm very kind to myself in my evaluation. Uh, this passage, it gives us one hint at this. Uh, when we think of this uh, younger son who wants the inheritance divided, we see somebody who is willing to sacrifice relationships over stuff. Who, who measures the good life and to say, my happiness, my happiness is dependent on me getting what I deserve, what I want. It's not somebody who says, you know what? It's not about what I deserve. Uh, it is the relationships of my life uh, are more important than me getting uh, my way. Uh, it is not about the stuff. Well, this story is about greed. It's about stuff. Uh, let's continue. There's three more keys that are vital, to, and vital for us to correctly understand this parable. Uh, Jesus says, life does not consist in the abundance of possessions, in verse 15. In verse 16, he says, I'll tell you a parable. He says, the ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns, and I will build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. Key number three is found in the statement, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life, eat, drink, and be merry. Key number three is, what Jesus is talking about, it's about a self-centered, self-sufficient spirit uh, is at the heart of this matter. It's about a self-centered, self-sufficient spirit. Uh, when, this, when this man uh, experienced this bumper crop, he thought everything that he received, everything that came to him was the result of his own work, and it was given to him, uh, not really given to him, uh, he had it because it was there for him and his. It's for me and mine. Uh, it's for me to spend and take care of myself. His thinking is entirely self-centered. Uh, it is also entirely self-sufficient. He believed that the best way that he can care for his future is by storing up his own wealth, uh, by keeping it all uh, for himself. And then his future will be secure. He can take life easy and eat and drink and be merry. Uh, he's a little bit like the man that James talks about in James chapter 4, 11 through 15. 
James writes, now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we'll go to this city or that city. We'll spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, I will do this or that. Uh, this man, the, the problem is not in the business decision of what to do with his bumper crop. The problem is that he thought all of his crop it, it came to him as a result of his own work, and it is ultimately for him to consume and use as he sees fit alone. That that is all that is significant. Uh, he believed that storing up stuff is the only and best way for him to plan for his future. That spending on me and mine uh, is the best plan for his future. And what Jesus says is that spending all that I have on me and mine is ultimately dangerous to me and to mine. So is it a sin? Is it a sin to plan for the future? Is it a sin uh, to put money in a 401k or an IRA? Is it, is it a sin to save up money rather than to give it away in order to reach some goal? Uh, I would suggest it's not about an amount of money. It's not about planning for the future. Because you'll notice in James chapter 4, Jesus says, don't ever make a plan. He says, if it is the Lord's will, I will go. I always am willing to take the God factor into account. And we'll see that as we continue this story. It is not about a certain amount of money, a certain way of planning. It is about a spirit that says, all that I have is for me, for me to use and consume for me, uh, that that my future is secure based on my plans wholly apart from God. Uh, a self-centered, self-sufficient spirit uh, is the problem, not a certain amount of money uh, or a certain amount of planning for the future. Uh, that becomes apparent as the story continues. Um, after this man says this, it says in verse 20, God said to him, you fool, this very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then who will you get what you have prepared for yourself? Key number four. This story is ultimately, it's about the future. It's about a long-range plan uh, that isn't just about this life. This man's long-range plan, long-term thinking, would say, you know what, if I store up enough stuff, then I'm gonna be okay in the future. And I can sit back and relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Uh, but Jesus has a harsh word. He says, God says, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded of you, then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? A uh, fool is harsh language, and the judgment that follows is harsher still. Uh, so we have to be careful to say, what exactly does God mean when he calls someone a fool? Now, a fool is not someone who walks around with a jester's cap on. Uh, a fool is not someone who everybody is kind of laughs about behind their back and say, ah, how foolish they are. You know what, that person, uh, you know, everybody knows they're not too swift. That's not what a fool is. Uh, if we look in the Old Testament, we see a fool uh, is someone who thinks they're smarter than their parents, Proverbs 15, 5. A fool uh, is somebody who has lots of opinions to share and a perfect willingness to share them in Proverbs 18, verse 2. Uh, in Proverbs 14, 8, it says a fool is somebody who loves deception. Uh, I think the fool, uh, in biblical terminology, is somebody who really thinks they're beating the system 
and they love to tell you about it. They often seem like they have it all together. But at their heart, the problem is, according to Psalm 53, verse 1, is that a fool says in his heart that there is no God. Uh, a fool is someone who lives without taking God into account. A fool, uh, more than somebody who says one thing or another about whether they believe in God, it's a person whose actions reveal uh, that they really don't uh, consider God. God is not one of the considerations in their life. Because if you believe in a caring God who provides for you, you will find security in him and not in them. Um, if you are really trusting in his provision, you will have a freedom to give and a freedom to live uh, that doesn't come from having a, a healthy bank account. Your best plans is what uh, God highlights in this. Your best plans for you are not if you die. It is fool's thinking to only consider uh, this life. That's what Ecclesiastes 2, 18 and 19 says. Uh, when the writer of Ecclesiastes says, I hated all the things that I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether that person will be wise or foolish. Yet they will have control over all of the fruit of my toil into which I poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is meaningless. It's about the future. Uh, a future that takes this life into account, but also the account, takes into account the life that is yet uh, to come. It is about uh, the future that we must be concerned. So how do we prepare for the future? That's the last key. The last key. Uh, Jesus concludes this parable with his editorial comment in verse 21. He says, This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich towards God. The key, number five, is store for yourself without neglecting to be rich towards God. Uh, notice that both of them are, are significant. It doesn't say the one who stores up for himself, that person has revealed themselves to be greedy. No, it says who stores, himself, who stores up things for himself, but, connection, but is not rich towards God. Uh, the person who is rich towards themselves, but is unwilling to be rich towards God. Now, it's kind of an odd statement to be rich towards God. Because who is richer than God himself? Does he have any need uh, of our, uh, our generosity in, in order to sustain himself or to accomplish his purposes? Is any of that really necessary? That's the, this, what we have to realize is that being rich towards God is not so much about us meeting God's need as it is God developing in us a character and an attitude towards life and possessions and, accord and to him. That is what is most significant to God. Uh, what does it mean to be rich towards God? Let me suggest five things. Uh, number one, a person to, who is rich towards God, a person who is rich towards God, uh, develops biblical practices for giving. Uh, five different things, five different ways that this is, this is true. Uh, number one, I think we learn from the Old Testament. In Exodus chapter 23, verse 19, uh, Exodus describes one of the main offerings that an ancient Israelite had to give. It says, uh, bring the best of the first fruits of your soil to the house of the Lord your God. How do I know if I'm rich towards God? 
uh, the Old Testament standard, and to be honest, it's repeated in the New Testament when it says early on the first day of the week, folks would bring their offerings to God. It was a first fruits offering. I know that I'm rich towards God when I give out of the first that I receive, not over what is left. When I don't say, you know what, as soon as I have met all of my needs, then I will care about the things that God cares about. Uh, then I will give towards what, what God cares about. A first fruits offering says, you know what, I take the first picking of that harvest, and that is what I give towards God. Uh, when I was in high school and college, I worked for a cooperative of blueberry growers, and uh, that was the closest I got to farming. I was working in a warehouse, driving a forklift uh, of blueberries around. Uh, but I did learn a little bit about that type of harvest. And I remember one year in particular uh, when all of the farmers said, man, it is going to be a great year. The first picking is looking so strong. It's looking so great. It is going to be a banner year. And then they took their first picking of this crop, and they went out for the second picking, and for whatever reason, the second and the third picking that they would hope to receive was terrible. Uh, it was just terrible. And I remember as these farmers would come in and, tell, and tell me this story, I'm like, wow, this idea of a first, first fruits offering is significant. Uh, when I give out of what I've received, I don't really know what is yet to come. But God said, you know what, your first offering, the one that reveals, that truly reveals how you feel about me is an offering that comes out of the first fruits, not the one that says, as soon as, as, soon as I've taken care of myself, then I'll take care of God. A first fruits offering reveals whether I am rich towards God. Uh, do I give off the top or do I give out of the leftover? A second biblical example of what giving of being rich towards God is, uh, is found in Leviticus chapter 1. In Leviticus chapter, in, Le, in the book of Leviticus, uh, Moses explains the offerings that God expects. Uh, and many of those offerings, whether it was a sin offering or a fellowship offering, uh, was something that you would share with the priest. And the priest would eat it with the person who ate the sacrifice, and the priest would take some of that home, and that's how the priest lived. Uh, some of that offering, some of the sacrifices that they would give would go to them. But there was one type of offering called a burnt offering. In the burnt offering, the priest would kill the animal, and the entire animal was to be put onto the offering, and it was to be burnt up. Like, to be honest, I am a, I'm a pragmatic guy, and I look at that and I say, wow, you're going to take a perfectly good bull or a lamb, and you're going to burn it all up. Do you know how many people you could feed? Uh, with a full bowl, uh, with a, that lamb? How many families could be fed uh, from that? It doesn't make any sense. Why would God require a burnt offering from his people in certain times and in certain circumstances? And as I thought about it, it's because God isn't so much concerned about the bull as he is about the heart of the giver. And the burnt offering was a way for an Old Testament uh, follower of God to say, I am giving this wholly over to God. No strings attached. No conditions. No seeking something in return. I am giving this over to God. Uh, and it's not, to, not for the benefit of the priest, not for the benefit of myself, but it is wholly my offering to God. I think we have to ask ourselves that question sometimes. Does some of my giving, do I do it without 
any benefit to myself. Without seeing any benefit, but I do it solely because uh, of my commitment and devotion uh, to God. Uh, that is the lesson of the burnt offering. How do I know if I'm being rich towards God? Uh, first fruits offerings reveal it. Burnt offerings reveal it. Um, the third thing that I see here is back in Luke chapter 12. In Luke chapter 12, we briefly mentioned this. Um, in in uh, the section, verses 22 through 34, uh, Jesus is preaching about, teaching about worry. And he says, don't worry. Uh, trust God. He, he's the one who clothes the flowers in the field, even the birds in the air, and takes care of them. He's going to take care of you. Don't worry. Uh, how can you reveal that you trust God and aren't worrying? In verse 33, he says, sell your possessions, give it to the poor, and provide, in doing so, provide purses for yourselves that will ne'er, not wear out a treasure in heaven that will not be exhausted, where no thief comes near and no moth destroy. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus says, you know what? If you want to be rich towards God, some of it comes in caring about the things that he cares about. And one of the things it says pretty clearly is God, God cares about the poor. He cares about those who are in need. I think the question for us is, what is our reflex response when we are confronted with a need of a person? Is my reflex response no, unless there's compelling reason to say yes? Or is my reflex response yes, unless there's a good reason to say no in this? Uh, Jesus' heart is for those who are in need. And so Jesus says, you know what, how you reveal that you're not clinging, that you're not worried about your possessions and what you have and whether your needs are going to be met, you do this by, by being open-handed that you're willing to give to those who are in need. And when you do that, you are thinking long-term. Uh, you're thinking about treasures that you are laying up uh, in heaven. By giving to the poor is one of the ways that we reveal if we are rich towards God. Uh, two last ways that we reveal our richness towards God. One is found in 2 Corinthians. Both of them in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, uh, Paul is encouraging the church at Corinth uh, to give. Uh, to give, actually, to some folks who are in need, who are in the midst of a famine. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, uh, verse 7, Paul writes, But just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in your love for us. Uh, Paul says, you do so many things well. If I'm going to look at your life and say, how are they doing spiritually? There are so many things that I say that you are doing so well. But he says, see also that you excel in this grace of giving. See also that you excel in the grace of giving. Paul, building on the teaching of Jesus, I believe is saying, you know what, how I give, is it something that I'm excellent at, that I'm really, really good at? When I look at all of my strengths, is that something that I am good at? To be rich towards God means that I excel in the grace of giving, that uh, I look for opportunities, that I give generously to them, uh, because that too, uh, that a spiritual life is not just one about resisting temptation. Uh, it's not just about telling the truth. Um, it is not just about being a, a good and respectable person. He says, 
uh, that part of being a person of faith is someone who excels in faith and speech and knowledge, in earnestness and love, uh, but also excels in the grace of giving. Am I excellent in giving? As I look at my life, is that something that is a strength? Uh, one last way that we can see if we are rich towards God. In chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, uh, Paul writes, Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, uh, for God loves a cheerful giver. Uh, the last sign that, I'm being, that I am someone who is rich towards God and not just consumed with making, uh, meeting, taking care of my own needs, and that is of primary importance to me, is that I give with an attitude of cheerfulness. That it brings me joy to give. Uh, it is not something that is merely out of compulsion or reluctance. You know, I talk to Pastor Chris. As the, as the pastor of administration, I, I, uh, I worry about the finances of the, of the church sometimes more than... Uh, more than I should, probably, uh, is the fact of the matter. And, uh, and some of it, uh, when I talk to Pastor Chris and I say, hey, Pastor Chris, you know, it would really be good if you preached a sermon about giving. Uh, you guys know when I say that because sometimes he does that uh, after the fact. Um, some of that, that reluctance is he said, you know what, if you, if you always come to the church out of need, oh, there's a great need, and so we do this, then it is, it, it feels as a, as Pastor Chris feels this pressure to say, man, I've got to get out the thumbscrews, uh, that, that I have to pressure people, that I say we're in desperate times and we need to do this, that you're not doing enough and I've got to, got to pull it out and pull it out of you. Um, and I understand where he is coming from. Uh, and that's why sometimes, just in the context of preaching God's word and what it really teaches about possessions, we need to say, what is it that God says about our attitude uh, about giving. Uh, and what this says is that giving, generosity, ought to be something that is a great source of joy. What's interesting is I look around the sanctuary, I see faces of people that I have seen the joy of giving. Folks who know the satisfaction of seeing somebody in need and anonymously giving a gift to them. Uh, folks who say, you know what, when I give a generous gift, um, I know God is pleased, and it makes me happy to be able to participate in that. That, that is so exciting. Uh, when I see something that we as a church are able to accomplish, and I know that I was a part of it, and that my giving was, that that brings me great joy. This is the attitude towards giving that, that God expects and desires in those who follow uh, him. Those who are rich towards God, uh, not just consumed uh, with uh, their own needs and their own possessions. Uh, why is God so harsh to a rich uh, farmer? Uh, a farmer who's received a bumper crop. At the heart of it, I believe the answer is truly that it's where your heart is. It's not about a certain amount of wealth, a certain size of barn, uh, a certain uh, greatness of a crop. It's not about uh, a vow of poverty that is necessary. It is about a heart that says, all that I have ultimately comes from God, and it is my delight to use what God has given in order to do what God wants me to do. To provide for my family, yes, that's one of the things that God has asked me to do. Uh, but also, that's not all. He wants me to think of eternity. 
He wants me to think of spiritual fruit that comes from what I, from what I give. He wants me to be rich uh, towards God. Uh, this is the life uh, that pleases him. Uh, let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your truth. And while uh, sometimes your word is a, uh, it is a mystery to me, it is hard to understand. Uh, what are you saying? What are your expectations? Uh, I know that as we study your word that we come to understand your heart. And I pray that we as a church and we as people of this church uh, would be folks who would find joy in giving, joy in seeing your work done, and that it would give delight uh, to our hearts. Uh, because we know uh, that a life that is lived, that is rich towards you, uh, Lord, we are confident that you will take care of us and that our lives are in your hands, and we trust you with our lives. Uh, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.